Hello everyone and welcome. It's finally time for book five of Tyrant's Grasp. God, it's been a long ride to get here, but we finally made it. I don't want to take too much time out of your recording experience here. I just wanted to take a minute to note that this episode, as all of our book starting episodes do, features a sizable cutscene from our fearless leader, Alex. For those of you who may not have listened to it, and I don't know why you didn't, but there is a very special episode that we released earlier this week called Arasni the Unyielding that details Arasni's journey up until this point in the AP. If you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend that you go back and give it a listen. It was a lot of fun to make, and I think it came out really well. But the book opening cutscene that is in this episode is just the final segment from that special episode that we released. So, in case you don't want to listen to it again, and that's understandable because presumably you would have just listened to it, but if you would like to skip ahead, we will put the timestamps in the show notes for the, uh, the, for the end of that cutscene so you don't have to listen to something that you just listened to. But that's enough out of me. I just wanted to give you guys a quick update as we dive into book five of Tyrant's Grasp with episode 126, Around the World. Welcome back to the Inspired Incompetence Podcast, proudly made on Earth. How's everybody doing? Oh my God. Book five, baby. Five times Hell better yeah. than book four. No more Galaspire. Fuck that. Oh, you guys say that with so much confidence. <laughs> I, I don't care. There's humans here, or at the very least, like... No, we think. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, it looks like we're out of town, I presume. Well... Only one way to find out. But first, we got a we got a level up. Who wants to talk about that? I can go first. It's kind of a small level up. So level fourteen, Uhtred got greater spell combat, which basically is just when I'm using spell uh, spell combat, I can choose to put an attack roll penalty uh, on the attack in favor of getting an equal buff to the concentration um, to get the spell off. It's like a combat expertise, but for concentration instead of AC. Yep, pretty much. Um, except combat expertise, I think, is a fixed number with spell combat. You can actually choose. So I could take a minus one penalty, two, three, four, really as much as I have attack you know, base to go with, I could take as a full penalty. I thought it was great- up to your intelligence modifier. Uh, or am I thinking of the base be. spell combat? Either way, uh, the what the greater yeah. version does is if you take that attack penalty, instead of it being an equal buff to the concentration, the buff gets 
doubled for the concentration. So a minus That's one so attack. Good. Yeah, is a plus two concentration. Um, that was the only like abilities I got for fourteen. Got the standard two new spells, which I took Ether Step and Telekinesis. I mean, Telekinesis is pretty straightforward. It's literally you know being able to move something with your mind. And then Ether Step is basically a defensive spell. Uh, it works with like an immediate action. So whenever Uhtred, uh an attack is directed at him or a spell is directed at him, before he knows the result of it, he can choose to cast Ether Step, which lets him literally slide into the eth- ethereal plane, miss whatever the attack or spell was, and then pop back out in the material plane. Yeah. Um, now you don't pop back out again until the beginning of your turn. So you would forego any attacks of opportunity in that time. You also then, only could take a move or, um, swift action. I think when yeah. you come out, so you lose your standard action. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good get out of jail free card. Doubling down on defense. I would have thought Uhtred, uh, would have wanted to up his offense a little bit after uh, not not being able to uh, having such high AC be a problem by the end of Gallowspire there. Yes, spells are still very much a serious problem. Like physical attacks, I think I've kind of solved the attack is definitely a problem, but I also think I've solved it between under the major fucking assumption that we're gonna get a. A shopping chance here and um the arcana points when i use one to apply things like keen or frost or flaming i could actually forego putting one of those effects on my weapon and just take a plus four bonus and make valo from a plus one to a plus five weapon which i would then you know, That's get true. that on attack and damage. So I think I've got that solved without having to spend any spells or necessarily feats yet on that. Okay. That's that's a good point. Yeah, the rest was just pretty standard. The only other real cool thing for 14 is my Phantom Steed now just flies. Oh, nice. All right, who wants to go next? Um, I'll go next. I don't have much at this level, so... um. I got a really cool spell. Um, it's called Firebrand. And this is a buffing spell for everybody. And what it does is uh, it adds a plus 1d6 of fire damage on a hit. Any hit with any weapon. Um, and that stacks with any other fire uh base damage as well but not just that though another cool thing that this does is you may um throw the rest of uh you know you're on your last round or whatever of this thing you can use it as a ray that uses a ranged touch attack uh to hit and it deals 6d6 points of fire damage and i can use this for I think uh, I can have uh, one creature per four levels, no two of which can be more than thirty feet apart. Uh, thirty feet apart, which comes out to be three creatures I can affect this with. So 
that's potentially 18 d6 points of damage plus whatever uh however much they want to do with that plus one d6 i think the most fun part of that spell is the fact that everybody who's branded is also rendered immune to any fire damage dealt by you yes so you can brand everybody up and and then then their positioning doesn't matter for fireball yeah yep uh, now, real quick, you guys keep saying branded. Like, it actually brands us? Because that sounds like some cult shit. So, this rune does not cause damage. It's a and, metaphorical brand. It, right, right. Uh, and it sheds light as if it were a torch. So, we do it. Uh, so, as long as I use the spell, it has a uh, kind of torch-like effect. All right, that sounds way better. Because, I mean, our genus is basically a, a cult leader at already <laughs> now he's like yo guys check it out brands for everybody rise up against your general your king <laughs> your literal king <laughs> yeah so um it's actually a pretty solid spell um outside of that i also got uh tower of constitution to add on to the ever ending uh the never ending uh card build that the, i have the yet ever, to use yeah, the ever-growing <laughs> list of abilities he's never used yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i was yeah. literally sitting here thinking like aren't you supposed to do cool things with your cards and i don't think other than a hero hero reading yeah. i've ever seen you do anything yeah yeah, yeah yeah it's, it's, all right, all right. yeah 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 we don't it's talk a, about it's that, a very though. very scram with siege engine type thing going on <laughs> oh, that was awesome he's just waiting until he gets to full power with this prestige class before he <laughs> unleashes its full capability. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, that's totally okay. how it works. <laughs> Note, if you don't use this ability until you get to level 10, <laughs> doesn't count. It's way better. Yeah. <laughs> All right, it rolls over next? to the next week. <laughs> uh, I'll go next. So, for 14th level for Teoblith, if you look at like the, the table of what a character gets at this level, it says one thing. It says implements six, which means I get a, a sixth set of implements that I use for, um, for my mental focus abilities. So going into this, I had transmutation, abjuration, divination, and conjuration. Aren't you missing one? Uh, transmutation, abjuration, divination, conjuration, and illusion. And... What I could have done, I could have taken a repeat of one of those, and that would have let me add a new spell of every spell level that I have up, you know, cantrip through fifth, like a a second spell of that school to my list of spells known. Um, what I chose to do instead was to go with a new set of implements, and uh, for those keeping track, there's only two that I don't have, and that would be evocation and necromancy and i figured after what we just went through in gallowspire it would make sense for teoleth to pick up a few necromantic tricks so that's what i did tell me about it yeah so i mean obligatory i took uh animate dead as the third level spell (laughs) okay (laughs) um but the uh occultist along with the other psychic spellcasters i suppose but occultist especially um I get the ability to use different possession-based magics. And so I took a couple of those spells. I thought that would be 
fun to play with. <laughs> and yeah, so, so that was about it. I got uh, I took Necromantic Focus, which what is your necromancy implement? Uh, it's going to be a uh, a bone that uh, specifically a bone from uh, Emeritus. Oh, okay. I like that. Are the lungs already an implement for something else? Uh, sadly, no. Maybe uh, you took his uh, his hubris. <laughs> That's a bone, right? Uh, his no. humorous. His, yeah, his hum- humor. Maybe yeah, that's what it's I was a- thinking of. No, hubris is a bone. It's definitely a bone. It is definitely a bone. Which bone is it? Tell me, Google. It's an arm bone, I think. Or maybe not. Maybe maybe Google is just being like, he must have meant humorous. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought it was. Oh, well. All right, anything else? Uh, that was all that I got. All right, how about level 14 Thalias? Saving the best for last. We haven't seen a Thalias level up since uh, level six, I think. Okay. <laughs> since Roslar's Coffer, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> that cuts deep. Uh, this one, got the normal stuff, BAB, will save. I got a spell known which is I picked reincarnate and so I'm going to be bringing stuff back to life whether they like it or not. I mean hopefully they like it. <laughs> that sounds it, so litchy. It does have to be a willing soul. <laughs> if, they, <laughs> if they don't want to come back it does not work. <laughs> so the exact opposite of what you're proclaiming. He was half right. Yeah. yeah. That was a half joke also. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh this astral journey class ability whatever that is i can do that now yeah that's kind of a waste of a class ability in my opinion because the spell astral it's the spell astral projection i think yeah but the spell astral projection lets you bring the rest of your party with you and like all of your equipment still functions but astral journey is just you your equipment doesn't function and it's yeah. like, all right, here I go through the astral plane. Wee. Probably be helpful so, like you're looking for Randolph. I maybe. <laughs> yeah. So th- that part was pretty disappointing in general. But I I know another spell now, and I'm slightly stronger. And uh, yeah, fingers crossed. Does uh, the medium only get one spell known per level? Yeah, medium has a very small number of spells. They're like a ranger or a paladin. But if they channel the hierophant, that's when they get more spells. All right, cool. Uh, So, yeah, you guys, you had yourselves a little intervention uh, at Renchurch where you convinced the Knights of Ozum to uh, stop being a bunch of of dummies Mm -hmm. and maybe don't try to take on two mythically powerful liches at the same time. And they listened to you. They turned back and uh, started retreating, and that's when Tarbafan set off his radiant fire. And it's unclear what happened to Arasni. You you watched her get consumed by the radiant fire, but she also enabled your escape from that disaster. If she herself is uh is you know just currently being re uh rebuilt at her phylactery or you know something else going on you don't know but the last thing you heard before she whisked you away from Renchurch was seek the kumaru 
And you're not sure what that means, but before we figure any of that out, we're going to have a little scene. A small smile warms her pale face as she gazes down upon her destiny. Thank you. And she leaves her friends to their mission. She climbs through the air, higher and higher. The cold Verlich winds would be unbearable at these heights, but Erasne feels nothing but the warm churn of battle brewing in her chest. She continues to climb until Tarbafon's army is but a sea of shapes and colors. Over a thousand feet above the ground, she was higher than any wards that would alert Tarbafon or any of his mages of her approach. She closes her eyes and searches for the cackling, mocking laughter that had haunted her for the last two years. He was somewhere in that sea of bodies, fancying himself, as always, invincible. It would be his undoing. There, in the middle front of his army, she knew he was there, even if distance and obscurity hid him from view. He was well protected, surrounded by fast and powerful minions, a devilish grin parts Erasne's face. Time to say hello. She reaches deep, deep within the well of arcane power at her disposal, where powerful magics only the upper echelons of mages can reach. She reaches deeper still, past the most extreme limits of practice, study, and talent, and grabs hold of power seldom seen by mortals. A power wielded by her enemy Tarbafan and her tormentor Geb, was shared by her, now with the will to fight back. Magical glyphs form around her head as she weaves signs with her hands and speaks words of power. Four red-hot spheres the size of large cannonballs appear, orbiting her raised right hand as it flexes with the strain of control, and in her left, at the tip of her outstretched index finger, a pea-sized ball of white light vibrates and flickers with hardly restrained energy. She looks down, takes aim, and hurls all four red spheres at the battlefield with one great sweeping motion of her right arm. They careen downward, intertwining in a beautiful spiral as they descend before spreading out equidistance from each other, collide with the ground, and then rapidly expand as they explode, each ball consuming an enormous area spaced out just enough to all intersect at the very center. An area over a hundred feet across, all told, even as the four balls explode in a devastating blast of fire. The tiny bead of white light is fired from the tip of Razni's finger with incredible velocity. It disappears inside the explosion at the intersecting center, and the ground shakes as the white light explodes in turn, blossoming out from within the deep red flames in a blinding riot of molten air, singeing the very fabric of the scene with ripples through our vision of Arasni's mythic meteor swarm spell coupled with her quickened, mythic, augmented fireball spell. The heat blasts upwards, pushing the air away from the blast zone as Arasni plummets to the ground, head first, her hair pulled back by drag. As spectacular as it was, her destructive assault had already faded away, the only remaining evidence being the over 100 foot wide swath of scorched earth and incinerated bodies. 
The massive army remains largely untouched, but Arasni is pleased to see very few undead remain in the aftermath of her spells, and the ones that do still stand only dot the outer ring, except one. Standing in the exact center of the blast zone, looking up at her descent, is a singular horned figure. Tarbaphon's robes tussle in the scorching wind as he scowls up at Arasni. As she gets within earshot, his scowl curls into a grin as he opens his mouth to speak, but Arasni isn't in the mood to exchange pleasantries. She touches down onto the sizzling rubble and immediately pivots, now speeding directly at the whispering tyrant, skimming just inches over the ground with her magical flight. Tarbaphon has just enough time to react and flies straight up, avoiding Arasni's next spell, a shimmering prismatic cone of lights. The spell misses Tarbaphon, but at the end of its far reach, multiple undead at the fringe of the blast zone are engulfed in the colors, and we watch as a wide swath of the Whispering Tyrant's minions erupt in wild gouts of different energies. Some are turned into stone, and more still simply vanish, pulled through space into another existence. Arasni grins at the effective discovery attack, but even more so at Tarbaphon doing exactly as she had wanted. Had she confronted him on the ground, the surviving masses would have converged on her in moments. Now, though, she has chased him out of reach of most of his reinforcements. But it wouldn't be so easy. As Arasni pivots yet again to fly straight up to follow him, a tidy bead of light skims just past her nose. She has only enough time to realize what it is. Tarbaphon's return fire. No way to avoid it. Arasni braces herself as Tarbaphon's own mythic fireball explodes right beneath her, sending the loosened rubble below, sailing this way and that. She can feel the terrible heat stab her entire body, but she pushes on, climbing above the explosion. Tarbaphon is waiting, and after the explosive opening and ensuing skirmish, the two take a moment, staring each other down as the two unimaginably powerful undead mages float a hundred feet over the sea of soldiers. Tarbaphon waves a hand matter-of-factly at their surroundings. Well, I must say, I never thought I'd see you here, Arasni. Shouldn't you be collecting taxes? Or settling a housing dispute? His skeletal face stretches in a taunting grin. Arasni glares at the smug brat floating before her. Shouldn't you be grounded? He sneers at her. My extended captivity was but a minor setback. As always, I prevailed better than ever. Your uncouth interruption here, though inconvenient, is merely another minor setback. After I dominate you for a second time... I'll have to parlay with Geb and demand he keep a tighter leash on his bride. Oh, he's aware of the leash problem. And Arasni reaches again deep into the well of mythic arcane magics within her. She extends her hands out toward Tarbaphon, fingers spread wide, and from each finger launches a small, bright red bolt of energy. Ten bolts twist and spiral through the air for a moment before locking onto their target and careening straight at him. Tarbaphon responds with his own spell and produces much the same effect, and Arasni's red bolts are intercepted and neutralized with his black ones. Without pausing, he then casts a new spell, and from his outstretched index fingers fire two green beams of crackling energy, 
Erasne draws her rapier, with one hand on the hilt and the other bracing against the flat of the blade. She catches the first beam along the length of steel, deflecting it off to the side, where it slices through a nearby cliff edge, freeing several tons of rock from the side of the mountain as it plummets down in an explosion of dirt and boulders. She can't deflect the second beam, though, which strikes her directly in the shoulder. Erasne staggers back from the damage, but her resilient body remains intact. She prepares for another volley, and we watch as the two spellcasters unleash arcane devastation upon one another, releasing unthinkably powerful spells that get absorbed, redirected, or countered by the other. The sky above Renchurch begins to glow from the magical fallout as the two liches aim to overpower and outmaneuver the other. Glyphs of light flare and twirl. Space itself is displaced from rapid teleportations for tactical repositioning, and the landscape surrounding the battlefield explodes in collateral damage from each parried spell. The back and forth finally ends when Tarbafon sends Erasne plummeting to the ground with an intense downward blast of air. Erasne lands on one knee, but before she can straighten up, she's swarmed by Tarbafon's army. She springs up to two feet, narrowly avoiding a sword swing from an impressively armored morgue. With a twirl, she steps around the sweeping claws of an enormous demon and skewers her rapier through the eye socket of an albino ghoul. Almost as if time had slowed down, we watch her duck and dance her way through this forest of onslaught. Steel, bone, and claw twist and scramble around her, but Erasne, like a drop of oil in water, turns them all away as she alternates expertly between finesse and brute force, until a large metal hook grabs her by the throat, and she gets pulled backward by its chain. The skeleton pulling on the chain reels her in hand over fist, dragging her bodily over the mud and eiker-soaked ground while she struggles against the hook in her throat. Finally, she gets a foot underneath herself and pushes off the ground, taking flight once more. The horde had thinned out as she was pulled away from what had become the main fray and could now safely fly out of reach. With her free hand, she keeps the chain gripped tight, and when it pulls taut, the skeleton on the other end is lifted off the ground, now trailing after her. She climbs a hundred feet, safely out of reach of Tarbafon's ground forces, before stopping all at once. The sudden stop brings a weightlessness to the hook in her throat, and before it gets pulled down once more, she pulls it free, ignoring the unpleasant feeling of removing the filthy steel from within her flesh. She lets go of the chain and lets the skeleton plummet back to the ground. Tarbafan was waiting. He floats in place, smirking his ugly smirk, no doubt enjoying the sight of her scrambling on the ground against his forces. He opens his mouth with a new taunt fresh upon his cracked, dead lips. But with a spin and a sharp movement, Erasne flings her rapier directly at him. I do enjoy... <laughs> the rapier's hilt protrudes out of Tarbafan's mouth, and behind him, we see the dazzling blade impaled through the back of his skull. A soft magical pop, and Erasne disappears and reappears directly in front of him, her hand already gripped on her hilt as it quivers at the end of Tarbafan's simmering rage. What we can see of his face behind the rapier's bell guard contorts with anger, even as Erasne giggles with satisfaction. <laughs> That's such a good look for you. She unsheaths the rapier out of his mouth, relishing the moment. Once unobstructed, Tarbafan bares his teeth in a low growl before uttering an incantation. His hands begin to glow, 
but Erasne thrusts her rapier again, this time through the bottom of his chin and out the top of his head. He loses the spell, appearing angrier than ever. She pulls the sword out again, and this time, Tarbafon flees. Erasne gives chase, the two mages zooming through the air. He skims between the crenellated towers of Renchurch, soars through the air, and brushes over jagged cliffs, but can't shake Erasne as she slowly narrows in on her quarry. He starts slowing down as the two clear a cliff edge, leaving the monstrous hordes far beneath them. He rounds a bend in the cliff and comes to a halt as he finds himself at a dead end. He turns around just as Erasne arrives, stopping a dozen feet away. She points a finger at his forehead. I must say, not your proudest moment. And a beam of green energy fires from her outstretched finger, just before it reaches the Whispering Tyrant, though. His sneer of anger curls into a grin. The beam connects and his entire body vaporizes. No, too easy. Erasne looks around. The real one must be hidden somewhere. Must have arranged this bait and switch even back while she was contending with his ground forces. Do you know what your most charming quality is? Tarbafon appears high in the air above her, a wild, manic grin splitting his face as he gazes down at her. The fact that you actually believed you stood a chance against me. A swish, an almost imperceptible magical whisper. Erasne looks down in its direction. The top of the cliff, the one she had thought she was hovering about 50 feet above, Another illusion parted with a flourish, and she was merely five feet above the rocky surface, and resting on the rock previously hidden by the illusion were three dormant fireballs, three pea-sized balls of barely contained destruction. In the moment she takes in the trap she had stumbled into, they explode. Erasne braces, shields her face with her arms, but the triple inferno scorches her flesh, burning away at her dwindling defenses. The rocks beneath her break apart, leaving a bed of rubble where smooth stone had been. The air is red with fire, blinding her in the moments of eruption. Not just once. The curtain of red parts, and Erasne has no time to react to the mountain-sized boulders careening through the air at impossible speeds before colliding into each other, sandwiching her in the middle as dirt and boulders explode in all directions at the titanic impact. But twice! The air is thick with the haze of dust and pebbles floating on the eddies the incredible energy of this fight. Erasne can't see Tarbafon anymore. She can't see the ground beneath her, past the dirt cloud. She was barely hanging on. She can feel her body straining to hold itself together. She can't feel the pain, but she can feel her fluidity of movement drop, her broken ribs stabbing her from the inside, her head leaking the black ichor holding her on death in check. That you thought my magical and intellectual superiority could be challenged by anyone, let alone the whimpering attack dog of the Knights of Ozum, the Harlot Queen of Geb. This was bad. Tarbafon had the upper hand from every angle. Erasne was reaching the limits of her physical body and her magical endurance. It wasn't too late to run. She had enough magic left to guarantee her escape and hide herself again. She reached into her drained well of magic and brushed against her reserves. 
It was comforting just to know that it was still there, just like Uhtred with his silly scimitar, or Randolph with Thalias, or... No, retreating wasn't an option. Those brave mortals were counting on her to do this. Maybe she was about to fail, but she would not fail them. No more running. No more hiding. She grabs her shoulder, squeezes, and jerks her arm back into its socket before rising up out of the thinning cloud of dirt. She readied her magic for the right moment. Batarbafan was ready for her. One moment she saw him, floating in the air a few hundred feet above and away. She grabbed hold of her magic, but the next moment, he was behind her. The tip of his finger pressed against the back of her skull, and an image burned into the air from his movement as if stopping time. She could see the trace of spells cast on himself from a distance before moving into his new position and starting time again, perfectly poised for his checkmate. She had one play, one desperate move to make before he released his spell. Erasne spreads her arms wide, palms out, and a lens closes around her and Tarbafan, a lens almost undetectable but for the faintest muting of colors. They fall, sixty feet to the ground, all magic, all spells suppressed. She lands with a hard thud, and her vision flickers once as her body nearly loses its grip upon impact. For a moment, they both lay in a heap on top of each other. Tarbafan seems bewildered at his inability to use magic. It's the faintest of hesitations that she needs as she stands up, and as he scrambles to follow, she strikes him across the jaw with her closed fist. It's not enough, though. Not nearly enough. He glares at her before whirling around. The anti-magic field is small, only a twenty-foot bubble, ten feet on either side of her. He could easily get out and regain the use of his powers. It would be the end of the battle. It would be his victory. No. She grabs his arm at the elbow, yanks up, and kicks the back of his leg. Tarbafan falls to one knee, and with a shimmer of steel and one mighty thrust, Arasni impales her rapier through his prone leg, right between the bones, pinning him to the ground. He twists around, reaching for the sword hilt, but Arasni kicks his arm away and throws another punch at the side of his head. He pauses, taking in the absurdity, before looking up at Arasni with a sneer. So, you're going to bludgeon me to my destruction like a common fighter, is that it, Arasni? Arasni tightens her fist as she winds it back. Sweetie, I can think of no end more fitting. And she lets another punch fly and another. She deflects another attempt to grab her sword, and lands another punch. Again. And again. Crack! 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 The sound echoes off the cliff walls around them. Hold the line! Over and over, Tarbafan's efforts grow more and more desperate as his rage grows more and more as Arasni continues to pummel the Whispering Tyrant closer and closer to his destruction until crack! Hold the line! Crack! Hold the line! Snap! His jaw is dislocated. He howls in rage and frustration while Arasni grins behind her own broken face. She only gets one more punch, though, before Tarbafan, instead of going for the sword again, grabs his own horned helm and throws it out in front of him. 
We watch as it hurtles through the air, and before touching the ground, a 30-foot-long black dragon appears, the horns of the helmet becoming those of the dragon. Acid drips from its wings as they flare out, carrying the creature through the air before it swoops back toward Arasni. She has only enough time to evade. She jumps back, away from the dragon's acidic bite, leaving Tarbafon pinned by her rapier but no longer in the anti-magic field. As she watches him struggle with freeing himself from his compromised position, Arasni has to act quickly. She suppresses the field, returning her own magic back to her, even while the dragon continues to force her back with more snaps of its fangs, slams of its claws, and swipes of its enormous tail. Tarbafon finally yanks his leg free of the sword and stands up, whirling around to face her. He raises a pointed finger at her, ready to finish the job. But the spell fizzles in a small puff of green smoke. With yet another roar of anger, he grabs his dislocated jaw and jerks it roughly back into place, just as the black dragon rears its head back, preparing to engulf her in a deadly gout of acidic breath. But Arasni holds her hands up and a deep red disc appears just above the dragon, and out of the disc plummets an enormous creature landing squarely on top of the dragon. The creature straightens up and we behold an amalgamation of stone and plant matter in the form of a powerfully built humanoid. Water perpetually pours down its wide-brimmed rice hat, and it wields a full-sized tree as if it were a quarterstaff. The dragon roars at the combatant, and the two titanic creatures lunge at each other. The nearby rock walls sizzle as acidic spit sprays from the dragon's mouth from a well-aimed whack of Arasni's titan's weaponized tree. The dragon's front claws scramble up the titan's front, showering the ground with shavings of stone and bark from the deep, corrosive gouges. The titan grabs the dragon by the throat and hurls it away, but the dragon's hooked appendages keep a tight grip, and the two monsters go tumbling to the side. As the way is cleared, Arasni can see Tarbafon quaking with rage, his dull gray scalp, visible now without his imposing horned helm, leaves far less impressive a visage almost even something shameful to look upon. Arasni watches him with apprehension, waiting for his next move, her greatest effort to destroy him interrupted by the emergence of that dragon. He would surely never allow her another opportunity like that. Her hopes of victory seemed truly out of reach now. But as we wait and watch, he doesn't go on the attack. Instead, merely watching back, it dawns on Arasni that Possibly, he was scared of re-engaging, or at least wary, taking time to calculate his options. She had shaken him, given him a taste of powerlessness, bended to his power but refused to be broken by it. It dawns on her that this was a position he hadn't been in in perhaps millennia. Though she was herself standing just before the cusp of oblivion, he seemed to be unsure of her remaining resolve. Meanwhile, the air buffets as the dragon flaps its enormous wings, getting itself airborne, but Arasni's titan knocks it back to the ground with an almighty chop from its tree-sized staff that sends an echoing crack up and down the craggy terrain. Tarbafon glances back at this titanic struggle with a sneer, then, with one final glare and an enraged growl at Arasni, he takes off, flying back toward the open valley that holds Renchurch and his forces. 
Razni's satisfaction at watching his retreat is overshadowed by her dread of facing his reinforcements in her condition. She takes off after him, but it's her titan who reaches him first and swings its enormous tree staff at him. Instead of the whispering tyrant, though, the tree makes contact with his dragon, who catches the tree in its strong, acidic jaws. A moment of sizzling cracks, and the tree shatters under the corrosive bite. The dragon pushes its advantage and plows into the dragon, horns first, starting yet another ground-shaking skirmish. Arasni gains on Tarbafan and passes over the two wrestling monsters, just as they all re-emerge from the rocky cliffs back into the Valley of Renchurch. Tarbafan glances back and sees her catching up. With another growl of frustration, he fires three rays of black, inky flames at her. She zips around the first two with several graceful twirls and flings the third to the side with a flick of her rapier. Casting his spell cost him time, and after evading, Erasne is able to halt directly in front of Tarbafan, who is forced to also stop. Behind tangled hair, bulging eyes, and partially exposed skull, Erasne sends a truly intimidating gaze, subsidized by the same wounds Tarbafan had delivered to her. And where do you think you're going? Tarbafan's eyes quiver with anger as he reels from his sudden stop, his teeth grind with fury, composure forgotten. But then it returns as his scowl widens into a toothy grin. What's the point of destroying you with no witnesses when I have a fully captivated audience waiting for the grand finale? He breaks away, flying up and back. As Erasne prepares to follow, though, she spots the destructive gout of acid breath at the last moment and flies downward to avoid the surprise attack from the Black Dragon, even as it continues to contend with her titan on the ground. As she evades, Tarbafan repositions and fires a green ray of energy down at her. Without time to think, Erasne twirls in the air and pushes off of nothingness, avoiding the beam by a hair's breadth as she spins up and out, closing with him once more, but this time with a dazzling thrust of her rapier. Tarbafan brings his arms up and catches the dazzling steel on his bracers in a grand spray of red and black sparks. From above her blade and below his outstretched arms, their eyes lock once more. Sounds to me like you're stalling. Through her peripherals, Arasni spots a golden glimmer of light cresting the hill beyond Renchurch. The Knights of Ozum were at their doorstep. Had her allies failed to turn them back? No, the mass of steel and horses wasn't moving. They must be locked in negotiations. They were still a safe distance from the battle, but that could change at any moment. Tarbafan bares his teeth in annoyance as they pull back from their exchange. You really are the most insufferable bitch I have ever had the displeasure of exterminating more than once. He breaks away again, and Arasni gives pursuit again. Over and over, they clash and part as the two liches dart through the air, slowly drawing ever closer back to Renchurch. Tarbafan has no doubt noticed the presence of the knights as well, but his attention was kept wisely on her as she pressed ever on in her assault. You're getting a little ahead of yourself. Aridin defeated you at Lake and Carthen when you were still mortal. And now, at your most powerful, you're about to lose again to his discarded, forgotten Herald. Though their monstrous allies continue to clash, the two liches soon travel beyond the reach of the clashing dragon and titan. Tarbafan grins arrogantly between bouts. 
Your grasp of the situation is tenuous at best. Did you really think this little suicide mission of yours was so clever as to be my own defeat? He sends a pea-sized ball of fire at Erasne, but before it can erupt on top of her, she slices it in half with her rapier, and with a twirl of steel, sends the two broken halves careening back at him. I think you're not as clever as you think you are. Tarbafon catches the two halves of his own fireball in each hand, and with a manic scowl of fury, hurls them downward in a fit of rage, where each half explodes against the fractured ground. With eyes wide and mouth frothing, the Whispering Tyrant stabs a prideful finger into his own chest. I am the most brilliant mage to ever walk among these pathetic, drooling mortals. Their very history betrays their ignorance. Aridin defeated me at Lake and Carthen because I allowed it, because my path to lichdom demanded my own death at the hands of a god. It was my ingenuity that transformed this divine tumor in my hand into the deadliest weapon in all of Galarian. I am but a wave of my hand from annihilating you, and your dear knights of Ozum, and soon I will have everything I need to mass-produce more shards, giving myself unfettered use of my super-weapon. This world will burn, and from its ashes will rise my new dynasty of the dead. The realization hits her like a slap to the face. The shards... They were pieces of the shattered shield of Arnesant. Before that, they were the shield of Aridin. Aridin's shield. The one he made untold lifetimes ago, when she was still just a mortal woman. If Tarbafan knew about its source, could he manufacture new shards in the same way? Potent as the Radiant Fire was, it was limited by its finite uses. If he could remove that limit, well, the inner sea would be but the Whispering Tyrant's first stop before blasting apart all of Galarian. It was a big if, though, even for him. You're bluffing. His eyes widen in a manic confidence that conjured in Erasne the memory of her skin crawling. Do you think so? She pushes those memories back. She had to keep him on his heels. I guess it doesn't really matter. You can't get far away enough to use the Radiant Fire without destroying yourself. I've turned your own witch gates against you, and now you're a dead man. If she was expecting this to knock his bravado down, though, Erasne was dismayed to see the opposite, as Tarbifan's grin somehow grows even wider, nearly threatening to rip his face in half. Oh, my dear Erasne... Dead men are my specialty. He breaks off again, floating toward Renchurch, though his new haunting confidence in her growing dread. Razni can't help this time but let him, as if she needed to hear what he said next. She follows, and the two are once again floating above the general vicinity of the fortress monastery. The shifting glimmer of gold and the very faint call of a horn of retreat at least gives her reassurance that her allies had succeeded in turning the Knights of Ozum back. But she keeps her attention on Tarbafan, 
She needed to know if he was bluffing. The lich spreads his arms in a grand boast. Did you really think that I would leave such a glaring flaw in my own creation? That you could, in your blind confidence, simply send some hopeful initiates into my domain and cut me off with impunity with but the flip of a switch? I can fully shut the witch gates down remotely from anywhere in Veerlich. I already have, before returning to Gallowspire and recalibrating them myself. But first, I believe I owe you a dead man? How about several thousand? And before Razni can even take in his ominous question, Tarbafan holds his closed fist up to eye level before opening his hand, palm out, and letting a tiny wooden shard tumble down toward the grounds of Renchurch, a hundred feet below. Razni's eyes grow wide as they flash blue for just a moment, and we can suddenly see things as she does. A thrumming green light, flickering and growing, projected from that tiny wooden shard as it falls toward the ground, and in her head a magical echo like an elastic band, ringing out louder and louder, matching the green flashes of light. In a swirl of smoke, Tarbafan, still grinning widely, vanishes. Beyond Arasni's notice, we can see about a quarter of his forces at Renchurch, as well as the distant dragon, likewise vanish. Arasni whirls around, and though distant, we can see her allies, watching from atop the hill that the Knights of Ozum once stood upon. Were they far enough? Impossible to know for sure, but her gut told her no. She has but a moment to act, even as the radiant fire begins to erupt from the tiny wooden shard, splitting apart the ground at the base of Renchurch and utterly consuming the stone fortress. She reaches deep into her magical reserves with hardly anything to spare. She wraps them each up in an arcane cocoon. Their job was not done yet, after all. If Tarbafan was preparing to make new shards, there was only one place in all of Galarian who was focusing those efforts. Even as the Radiant Fire's blast overtook her, and she could feel her body being torn apart, with all of her remaining strength, she hurls the cocoon mortals through space, away from the danger and toward their destiny, with the only message she has time to craft. Seek the Kamara. And that was it. That was everything she could do. With no power remaining, no options remaining, no will remaining. Razni bathes in the absolute destruction of the Radiant Fire, unsure if she even had yet a physical form to be destroyed. There was no pain, no discomfort, just the sheer, momentary bliss of nothingness. Would she reawaken back in Geb again, imprisoned? Would she ever awaken at all? The modifications to her body and soul remained. It was a strange feeling, then. As her thoughts slowly grew ever darker, she found herself tumbling toward a precipice of unknown. Each thought could be her last, and it scared her. She smiles, well, as much as a formless consciousness can smile. Freedom through oblivion, or renewed, empowered enslavement. Yet the last thought we can grasp before the scene slips away is of those stubborn, pig-headed adventures she had just spent everything 
to save. And the blinding light fades, ever so slowly, until it's a mere ball of light, our eyes adjust, and we see the ball of light is the sun, eclipsed by a dense canopy of lush trees, a rush of wind, and a heavy pop, and those pig-headed adventurers appear before us, looking around with growing confusion. A wide, sparkling river flows past them, just as stones throw away, and tropical birds call out from out of sight. As they take in their surroundings, we rise into the air for a better vantage point. Above the tree line, we can see the river flow past a distant city filled with tall stone buildings and enormous flowers. We keep rising, and far beyond the city, we can just barely see another structure peeking out through the tree line, a large stepped pyramid. Everything is bleached from our vision as the sky grows too bright to see. And as it dims again, the landscape is replaced by large, dark letters forming the title screen. Book 5. Born by the Sun's Grace. Sweet. Ooh, buddy. So there is a book 5. <laughs> <laughs> it's the fabled book 5. Some said it wasn't real. Last thing you guys knew, you had successfully gotten the Knights of Ozum to retreat. But then the Radiant Fire went off and... It's really hard to tell what the final fate of the Knights of Ozum is, and also where the hell you are. There's no like distinguishing features about this city to indicate what city it is? Well, right now it's still pretty far away, still a few miles away. I will take uh, either a knowledge nature or geography check to uh, just kind of assess your immediate surroundings i think i just put a another point into knowledge geography it's a 26 for utrid knowledge geography any others rolling that i don't have it yo where are we guys 14 from a net three yeah thalias really can't make like he's like we're in, we're in a jungle of some kind uh but beyond that Oh my god, we're back in Gallowspire. <laughs> um, uh, you would know, it is clear that you are not in some sort of, uh, like, Radiant Fire fallout. Like, the Radiant Fire, historically, has made, like, lush jungles or, like, other vegetation in its wake. Um, this does not seem to be like that. Uh, in those cases, it has always been coupled with like these like gross like cancerous gray fruit growing from trees that don't normally bear fruit and like all the animals are killed and if the, any remain they're either horribly mutated or zombified but like you can just hear these birds chirping and like you see some like critters like skirting from you know one tree branch to another and there's actually some uh, some flavor texture. I'll just read that for you. Uh, All around are towering trees, rising so high that only small rays of sunlight pierce the canopy. The sounds of singing birds fill the air, and the sudden cloying humidity is a shocking change from the cold air of Verlich. The enormous flowers and bushes beneath the trees are vibrant but unfamiliar. Nearby, a large river flows lazily as it cuts through the foliage. Off in the distance, past the river, 
The forest thins to reveal stone structures decorated with flowers. Um, Uhtred, the one thing you know for sure is this jungle is nowhere near Last Wall or Ustalav. Like, yeah, the, the closest jungle that, like, you know of that could have fit this kind of climate and, like, just general feng shui is the Mwangi Expanse, uh, which kind of, uh, it's closer to, like, where the shackles are. It's like, more tropical areas at around the inner sea. But just looking at the foliage and hearing the birds calling and, like, any other woodland creatures that you see flip by you're not in any forest that's anywhere in the inner sea can i can we do any sort of check to identify what the kumaru might be give me a knowledge nature check utra that's all you (laughs) so 25 uh with a 25 uh you're really not nothing's really coming to mind you know you really can't make heads or tails of what's going on the only real heading you have is uh, is this distant city. Um, but one other thing you can do is give me a survival check. Ooh, that I can do. That I can't really do. Ugh. 19. I invested um, so many ranks into survival, and I have rolled like <laughs> shit on every survival roll that I've been asked <laughs> since I started playing Teoblith. <laughs> well, luckily, a 19 is still enough to... Uh, while you surely have no idea what these plants are, uh, whether or not they should seem exotic or not. You don't really know. But with a 19 survival check, you do recognize that many of the plants in your immediate area are being tended. Like, it seems like like you're clearly in a, in a forest, but the layout and... The, the way that they're growing, it seems very deliberate. It seems like this is a cultivated forest, or at least it's there's a an, forest that's someone, is, like, there's an intelligent design behind yeah, the like, growing of these plants. Yeah, like, there's an intentionality at work here. Yes. So what do you guys do? Might as well head to the city, try and figure out where we are. I would welcome any time in a city at this point. So before we go any further, I'm going to throw out a wild theory as to where we might be. Sure. I think Arezzi managed to send us somewhere... To the future. <laughs> no, either either to the very distant past or to uh, just some hidden lost remnant of Aslant. Okay. So we got past, future, and... Some isolated area of Aslant. Yeah, she either. I assume. I think she sent us to her. Yeah, I think she sent us to Aslant. Either way, I'm just not sure if it's some lost fragment of it in the present, or she like sent us in the past to try and find something. I'm guessing you're using her affiliation with Aridin, the last Aslanti, to yes, kind of guide that theory. The fact that she also came from Aslant, but yeah, so. Uh, how are we traveling to this city? Phantom you guys are level fourteen now. You have quite the quite the selection of uh, locomotion available to you. I could teleport us right to the city gates. That sounds good to me. Um, <laughs> I say we teleport right into uh, Rogar's shop. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm certain he has a shop here. 
It's a matter of, I don't know how far away that's going to be. <laughs> I only got a 1,400-mile radius here. Uh, but no, I'll, I'll teleport us like right to the city gates if, if no one objects. I mean, if you want to use a 5th-level spell, go for it. Yeah, I'm game. Let's do it. There's a city right there. I ain't going to walk. Let's fucking go. All right. So you arrive at the front gates of this city. Prime, uh, the buildings of which are primarily made of uh, stone, and it's kind of fucking beautiful. All the buildings are decorated with these, like, just professionally, like, artistically crafted uh, arrangements of flowers, and then the biggest fucking flowers you've ever seen in your life, like, grow out of the ground every so often, like maybe like once per block that are like themselves the size of a tree, but it's like just a gigantic like dandelion or like daffodil or something like that. Uh, And it's just this such a pretty colorful city. And as you're, as you're approaching, you see people like up on like scaffolding, like adding more, flower arrangements to this uh to these buildings it's like maybe this isn't like how it looks all the time but it's like being like decorated for for some purpose everybody is uh dressed in these very flowy outfits of these like bright pastel colors many of which have like flower decorations on them you guys very, very easily stand out, what with, like, the gore and viscera covering yourselves, and, like, you are, the way you're dressed, even if you were, like, like, you know, dressed to the nines and, like, looked awesome, like, you you stand out, like, this place has, like, you know, there's definitely some sort of cultural divide that uh, is, you know, a hard barrier between yourselves in in this place where like you just look out of place it doesn't take long for someone to spot you and uh a young man approaches you talal oh what (laughs) is that a different language (laughs) did you did you learn a full other language for this ap (laughs) yes that's exactly what he did yeah i i went on Duolingo. Yeah, this person just, he kind of just starts speaking to you in some language that none of you know. Can I roll linguistics? Sure. <laughs> Are you sure none of us know it? Uh, anybody who's got multiple languages, go ahead and give them to me. Maybe I'm mistaken. All right. I know Celestial, Dwarven, Orc, Abyssal, Aklo, and Necril. I've got Common, Elven, Sylvan, Draconic, Celestial, and Infernal. Uh, yeah, nobody has the language being spoken. And what do we got for linguistics? 35 on a natural 20. 17. <sighs> okay, so yeah, I definitely want to give it to you because that's incredible. Yeah, uh, so give it to me. Oh, well, I'm thinking of it too. Uh, new book, so we all get a hero point, right? That's right. Yeah. Yes, you do. And I want to award Nick... Uh, an extra hero point for his uh, fantastic role-playing uh, at the, the end of book four. Oh, nice. Yeah, Uhtred, you, you don't know what's being said, but you recognize this language from 
probably just some like some bit of text that you read at some point during your training, like maybe just a little bit of like, like extra reading, like just to kind of, like, I don't want to fucking read about Saren Ray and like arcane magic today. Like that's all I ever do. Like, I'm just going to read about what is this? Uh, Arcadia. Sure. And you remember reading about the, uh, the distant land of Arcadia, uh, which is, on the other side of the planet from the inner sea, uh, where their common tongue is called Razatlanti. Razatlanti. Tiamrath. I think he might be speaking Razatlanti. Razathun? What, what now? That's the language that's spoken in Arcadia. Like, you see Tiamrath kind of like close his eyes and he's like trying to remember that globe he saw one time. It's like, Arcadia. Did she send us around the frickin' world? I think she might have. In Kanin? This this person's still like he's like he 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 looks he doesn't look like scared of you or anything. He looks very like concerned, like maybe for you, because you're just like wandering into the city like looking like looking terrible. Uh do I know of any is it like um you know, like the romance languages, like they have similarities because they're kind of built off of a base language. Yeah, no, these would be, like, a completely different family of languages. Would we know that this is all they speak? Like, if we could run down, like, our list of, like, hello, hi. Just, like, say words in every language that we know until he recognizes one. Right, like... Uh, Well, next thing, does anyone happen to know comprehend languages or tongues? I don't think so. So it, it's, I guess I wouldn't say it's on the other side of the planet, but it is real fucking far that you got sent. Yeah. Like, so it's the equivalent of being sent from like, like um, Europe over to North America from, yeah. yeah from like Germany to Mexico. And you can see you can see like these this archipelago of like islands in the middle of the ocean there that's where Aslant used to be yeah that's where Matt thought uh, you were sent he uh he he didn't go far, far enough in his assumption uh so more and more people are starting to like gather around uh and it doesn't look like it's like an angry mob starting to form like you don't feel like you're in danger it just feels like more people were just kind of like concerned, like, like who are these people? Do they need help? Like, help, like, hello, like, where did you come from? Who are you? And th- meanwhile, you're just kind of talking amongst yourselves in this other language that they don't know. And, uh, then this, this, uh, this woman, uh, approaches you from the crowd of people and she's extremely short. Like, at first, you probably thought that it was a halfling approaching you, but anatomically, uh, biologically, she is a she is a human, and she kind of takes a, a a moment and just takes in the the general chaos, and then she uh she casts a spell, and uh, Tiablith and Uhtred would automatically recognize it as tongues. Everybody seems to like stop their chatter when when she steps forward and starts casting a spell, and they they all seem to like just from their 
body language. It seems like they're kind of like, they respect this woman and she like, they're like taking her lead. And in addition to being short, she's also like very like rather old looking. Uh, she's like a, like a, a tiny little grandma. What color is her hair? It's gray. Is she, or is she not past her prime? <laughs> Answer the question. I plead the fifth. That's a yes. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, Hold on, I got a picture of her too. And you can decide for yourself. Yeah, but nobody cares about our opinion. Smash or pass. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah is, that prime. A, is that a smash from <laughs> Joe? <laughs> That's prime, baby. <laughs> so I I asked about the color of her hair because everybody knows grandmas that have like purple or blue or eccentric hair colors are the most fun. She's got some purple streaks in there, man. Yep. A little, little lavender-y, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you that. It might just be like the glow from the potion she's holding, but yeah. So yeah, she casts tongues on herself and everybody kind of shuts up and they're like, oh, like, er- look, everybody, like our, our all of our questions are about to be answered. Uh, and she looks at you all and she says, uh, hello there. My name is Mariana Olivares. I am a scientist. Uh, who are you? Oh, thank goodness someone's civilized. <laughs> oh my God. She raises an eyebrow at that. <laughs> Teoblith steps forward like, Hello, my name is Teoblith Greenstrider. Uh, these are my associates. You could tell Teoblith really wanted to say underlings there, but he didn't. And you could tell that Uchard <laughs> was watching what words he chose carefully. <laughs> These are my servants. <laughs> uh, that's uh, Arginus, Thalias, and Uhtred. And nice uh, to meet you, ma'am. Yes, very much so. Uh, where are we? Is this p- perhaps Arcadia? In the future? Wow, that is so on point for our group. Reasonable <laughs> question from Teoblith, add-on from Uhtred, craziness from the peanut gallery. Yeah, we should have let our genus introduce us. That would have gone smoother. I, I wasn't implying that. <laughs> no, I'm saying <laughs> that's our other. It, it's that formula, and then the other one is our genus, and then we have no idea where it goes from there. Our genus just being a crazy man. <laughs> yeah. You are in the city of Yolispan, in the Yolispan Forest. You are currently in the nation of Zopatl, in central Arcadia. You're on the planet Galarian. That um, we figured as much. At, well, it's, as it's for, good to get confirmation there. Sorry, continue. It is not the future for me, so I cannot say for you. Uh, do you uh, happen to know what year it might be? <laughs> or uh, well, any, They might follow a different calendar than we do. Or any close events that happened on a global scale? <laughs> uh, she She tells you a date and that lines up with what you would expect uh you are not you you did not jump through time it is the current day all right just through space well that's kind of a relief so may i may i ask you what has brought you to our city uh looking like you have recently crawled out of your own graves um well i i wanted to bring that up actually like I feel like we're not 
terribly filthy anymore. Like obviously our clothes are like that's true. Not we did spend the like, night. Yeah, we spent the, curse. the night. Yeah. So like they're still old and well worn clothes, but we're I figure we're not like covered in gore anymore because our genius <laughs> is probably still inside his uh his cut like. His custom hotel clothing. Just he's still wearing the yeah. robe from the like robe. the the, the <laughs> spa. I, yeah, yep. there's a big H embroidered on it, so you know he stole it. <laughs> I, I still have the towel on my head. It's my hair still drying. Uh, all right, fair enough. So, uh, oh, if you don't mind me asking, uh, where did you come from, and why do you look so tired? Are you familiar with Last Wall? What's the name of that ocean that separated like the two continents? It's the Aerith Ocean. Aerith? Maybe. That might be a different fictional world that I'm thinking of. And like to add on to that, to be able to just let, list off other countries like, you know, Cheliax, Taldor, <laughs> Varicia, Andorra, and like she, any of these ringing a bell. She holds, she holds a hand up and she says, I am familiar with all of these. You are from the inner sea region. Yes, correct. Very well. Then I suppose my question is, you do not seem to have arrived here of your own accord. How? Not exactly. So what What circumstances have brought you to Yolispan? Well, uh, is gonna, the context here is going to rely on uh, a simple question. Have you ever heard of the Whispering Tyrant? Oh, yes. Uh, terrible lich from many, many years ago. Well, not, not as many so many think. years ago. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's found his way free. Oh, that is terrible news. So you have fled the Whispering Tyrant over to Yoli's Pan? Uh, I cannot say I blame you. Strategically retreated. Well, we were forcibly retreated are you yeah. aware of uh Arasni? <laughs> Arasni, the warrior mage uh, she died millennia ago <laughs> do you mean she somehow lives again uh, again kind of <laughs> not uh, as long as you would think <laughs> uh this is gonna be a, a a very long story do you uh uh, do you happen to have uh, a location with tea or a place that we may sit? Oh, yes, of course. You can come to my house and perhaps you can give me a complete answer to any of my questions. Please, come <laughs> with me. Uh, and she kind of, she turns and uh, you. she's speaking to like the crowd at large. And uh, I think Tongues just kind of lets you know what she's saying or she might be. It might only be when she's addressing you. I think, I think it's tongues just, just automatically translates everything you say to everyone around yeah. you. Uh, she turns to the crowd. She says, these poor refugees have been forced here uh, from a terrible conflict across the ocean. I am going to take them to my house and we will sort this all out. And everyone's like, oh, ah, yeah, yeah. rabble, rabble, rabble. Um, but... The people of this city are like just chill as fuck, and like they all—they're all looking at you with like genuinely condolences, and like some people like put their hands on your shoulder, and like you can't understand what they're saying, but they seem like they're—they're—they're they're, they're basically saying like the equivalent of like I'm so sorry, like I hope 
you know, I hope your shit turns around. Like, please, like, you're welcome here. Like, just go get comfortable. Yeah, maybe we should just stay here and be like, <laughs> yeah, whispering tyrant man, you, you, you got the inner seat. We're cool. <laughs> Have a pint at the local pub and yeah. I'll blow. Him, yeah. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that, that's the problem. Is uh, do we really think he's going to stop at the inner sea? Well, what what was the extent of his reach before the Shining Crusade? Did he reach like all of Galarian, or was it just the inner sea? It was just the inner sea, but he also didn't have nukes in his back pocket back then. So Marina leads you to her house, uh, which is as most buildings uh, made of stone and just decorated with like the most gorgeous arrangements of flowers. And uh, she brings you inside. And from the the feng shui of her home, it's clear that she is uh, some sort of uh, she said that she was a scientist, but like perhaps she's also like a teacher or a professor. Uh, it's It's unclear, but like she has a. It's like a structured chaos kind of situation with like, like it's very cluttered, but everything's also seems to have its place. Um, and she, uh, she brings you into the kitchen, invites you to sit at her table and she starts busying herself, like getting you guys something to drink. So tell me about this whispering tyrant and the warrior mage Erasni that she she lives again, but not really, and it's all very mysterious and foreboding. I can't wait to learn more. Well, the Cliff Notes version of it is the Whispering Tyrant escaped his prison. Erasni has been all alive, and not really alive. She's been turned undead centuries ago. Her tea kettle falls to the floor, and she, she looks at you. And, like, just, like, a switch. And she is, like, overcome with sadness. You're sure it's Erasni? Oh. Oh, yes. Undoubtedly. Uh, have you, you've, you've heard of the Shining Crusade? She, she kind of, like, for a second, it's like she didn't even, like, hear Tia Bliss. She's just, like, like, hand to her chest, and she's, like, looking down at the floor, uh, and she like takes a couple breaths and she she nods her head. She says, yes, yes, I, I've I have heard of the the Shining Crusade. Um, well, I mean, you are aware Erasni died in that, correct? The stories of Erasni told in Arcadia are of the warrior mage who studied arcane botany with many other Yoli's Pan scientists, and she she grew very powerful and learned in her magics and prowess, and she went on many adventures, saving innocent lives and exploring the wilds and doing good. But the legend of Erasni, as we know in, Arca in Arcadia, and with her death, she was killed by the terrible beast Tlokak. If her story persisted after her death, we have no knowledge of that. Okay, well, then allow me to share with you what I know of Arasni. She she looks right at you, like, wrapped with attention. As far back as we know, Arasni emerged from Aslant alongside a, another man named Aroden. Aroden. She kind of, like, spits the name. Arasni was never from... 
Aslant, but she did grow smitten with that meddling man. Indeed. Well, over the course of their travels and exploits, Arodin actually managed to ascend to divinity. He became a god. And Arasni attained a spark of divinity as well, becoming his herald. As time went on and events progressed, and the Shining Crusade came, and Arasni was killed at the hands of Tarbafan himself. Then maybe a century later, give or take, she was raised as a lich by the the ghost king Geb, if you know the name. And for the last 800 years or so, she's been ruling the nation of Geb as his queen. Uh, I now suspect, and well, all right, I know she was doing so, you know, forcibly. She was being, uh, Geb had control of her phylactery, so he could force her to do things. So he made her act as queen while he just, did whatever he does. Fairly recently, the Whispering Tyrant figured out how to escape his prison. So she, kind of working through us, she facilitated a way to confront him and tried to to feed him before he could, you know, do what he does. That seems to have failed. And in one seeming last-ditch effort, she sent us here as she was being, once again, consumed by an unholy fire. She's just shaking her head, like, to herself. And when you finish, she, uh, she stops shaking her head and she just says, Erasni, she did not deserve such a fate. How horrible. She was... A protector. She was a scientist. Oh, this is so sad. Yes, uh, of course. it's rather tragic. Um, on that note, she did give us one final message before sending us here. She told us to, and I quote, Seek the Kumaru. Does that mean anything to you? She kind of snaps out of her, uh, of her sorrow, and she looks up at you. Kind of... Hard to read the expression on her face. And she says, Oh yes, everyone in Yolispan knows of the Kumaru, the great reminder of Eridan's greatest meddling. And we'll see you next week on the Inspired Incompetence Podcast. Dang. Uh, damn. See ya. See ya. Uh, see ya. See ya. <laughs>